meditation. Again, with a, a sense of gratitude for all the help and love and guidance and education and encouragement and so on that we've received from others. Now, so really coming back to that feeling of being interconnected with others and having been the recipient of tremendous kindness from them. Yes, of course, we've had problems with other sentient beings, but compared to the help they've given us, the harm is actually quite negligible. And in addition, if we know how to think properly according to the thought training, teachings, then we can transform heart into the path to awakening. And so for that reason, let's keep our mind in a positive state by focusing on what is good, what we've received, and have a sense of wealth and plenty in our mind instead of focusing on everything we haven't gotten and feeling a sense of poverty in the mind. Instead, focus on what we've received from sentient beings and have that feeling of gratitude, that feeling of connection, that wish to repay the kindness. And then from that, then, generate the determination to free ourselves from cyclic existence, to realize the nature of reality. Because when we're able to do that and eliminate our own impediments and gain more good qualities ourselves, then it will be very easy to repay the kindness of others by working for their benefit. So it all starts with that motivation. So we generate that motivation and then expand it limitlessly to all beings for the development of all good qualities to benefit beings in every way possible for as long as space endures. now, but some years ago it was a very popular to uh, talk about oneself as being wounded. And everybody was going around feeling wounded, you know, I'm wounded, um, you know, because of different things that happened in my childhood, because of this, that, or the other thing. And I think you know, for some people, it, it led to them generating a self-image of themselves as a wounded individual. In other words, as somebody who's incomplete, who's less than, who's deficient, who's wounded. 
know about you, but if I develop that kind of uh, self-image, then I start shutting myself off from all the goodness in the world. Because my image of myself is as someone wounded, you know, who can never fully recover because the world can never be trusted. Yeah, the world's never going to give me what I want. And I think, you know, that kind of self-image just, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Don't you think? Walking around, I'm wounded. And yet you meet some Tibetans, for example, who uh, indeed, if it, you know, were traumatized by what happened in their country, but they don't have the uh, self-identity, the self-conception of being wounded. And because they lack that self-conception, they, they have a very different view of life. So, you know, it's the whole glass half empty, glass half full thing. You know, and what are we going to focus on? And, uh, yeah, what are we going to pay more attention to? So, of course, that's our own choice. Yeah. And we create our reality according to what we pay attention to and what we emphasize. So if we're constantly miserable and feeling less than and deficient and wounded, maybe it's because that's how we're thinking of ourselves. Instead of looking at all that we've received. And I think, you know, His Holiness talks about this, how We take the goodness in the world for granted, we expect it, and so what we notice is the harm and the times we don't receive the goodness. So those are the unusual times, we pay attention to them, we notice them, we make a big deal about them. So, you know, you could even, I mean, you look at the situation, for example, of the the refugees from the Middle East. And on one hand, I mean, the situation is horrific, and especially, you know, countries, certain countries closing their borders to these people. On the other hand, within their own interrelationship, I'm sure there's also a lot of kindness going on. Parents looking after each other's children, you know, children, uh, you know, being loved and cared for by their parents, you know, some sympathetic people in different countries who maybe share food or give something to them as they're walking through the countryside. you know, yes, there's a great deal of pain and unfairness, but I'm sure within the people's relationships, there's also a lot of kindness going on. Yeah. So it's not to poo-poo one and emphasize the other, but 
you know, to to really, uh, you know, not build an identity of ourselves as, you know, full of shame and defective and all this, yeah, because that way of thinking becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Whereas if we really train our mind to see the goodness around us, then we can see goodness in even small things. Yeah. You can take a walk in the forest and, you know, you feel quite close to all the grasshoppers and the birds and the, and the um, grouse. Yeah. And, of course, our friends the turkeys. So, you know, we could emphasize what a nuisance the turkey is, turkeys are, because they poo all over the place, and we step in it, and they eat our apples, and, you know, we could make a big deal about how we hate the turkeys, or we can just feel like, hey, we share this land with the turkeys. Yeah? And they're kind of cute <laughs> in their own way. And if we look where we're going, we don't step in their poo so much. <laughs> okay? So, you know, what I'm getting at is so much d- depends on uh, what we highlight in our perspective, what we pay attention to, how we interpret things. So what Dharma is teaching us to do is to have a more realistic view of things without seeing impermanent things as permanent and things that have the nature of being unpleasant as seeing them as bringing happiness or seeing things that are foul as pure or seeing things that uh, lack a self as having one. You know, the Dharma is trying to get us to see things more realistically. And then also more beneficial, you know, in a more beneficial way. Now somebody could say, well, wait a minute. Seeing them realistically and seeing them beneficially, those don't go together. Because when I see things as impermanent, then I get depressed. Because my job's impermanent, my money's impermanent, my relationships are impermanent, my body's impermanent, my life is impermanent, everything's impermanent, I don't have anything secure in my life, I feel terrible, you know, if, if impermanence is reality, it's making me depressed. Yeah, somebody could think like that. Okay? On the other hand, somebody could say, well, things are impermanent, that's the nature of how they are, and if I adjust my mind to how things are, then when things change, I don't get knocked off center. I just accept it because I knew it was happening all along. And also, when I think of things having changed as their nature, it encourages me in my practice because... You know, change means I can become a Buddha. I'm not stuck always being the way I am. Yeah, change can be something really good and wonderful. We can change from being jerks into being Buddhas. Yeah, impermanence is good. 
okay? So, you know, to really look at how we interpret things and, and see the good things, you know? The possibilities in our life. Instead of always looking and, oh, I can't do that, and I can't do that, and I can't do that, and I can't do that. Looking at what the possibilities are and what we can do, you know, and rejoicing in that. Okay, maybe we can't do everything. Maybe we can't do what we really want to do. But hey, there's a whole lot of things we can do. So let's do them. Instead of sitting and sucking our thumb and saying, poor me. So somebody, when Geshe Deshi Dana was here last weekend, somebody uh, said, you know, you seem so joyful, how do you do it? Yeah. And so it's simply through his practice and his outlook in life. You know, it's not that he has some special genes or some special fairy godmother or, you know, something like that. It's because of his outlook on So, last time we finished up talking about the, um, the six preliminary practices. Remember? Can you name them? Clean the room. Clean the room and set up the altar to make offerings. Properly procured. Three. Check your. Sit down. Sit down. Yeah, in the proper meditation position and. Stabilize your mind through doing some breathing meditation and. Set your motivation. Then four. Visualize the merit field. Do the seven limb prayer. Oh, when do we take refuge in Jeremy? Well, when you're doing your motivation. Ah, that's part of that. Okay, so the seven limb prayer. And six? Mandala. Well, the mandala offering is the vehicle, but what's the actual sixth one? Making requests. Making requests. Okay. (laughs) It seems you're all very well prepared and reviewed your notes extremely well and know this very elementary practice, the six steps of this very elementary practice that you should be doing every day. Okay, so if you want me to continue teaching, you need to learn what's been taught and be able 
to at least remember the outline the next session. Otherwise, there's no use for me to, to talk because it goes in one ear and out the other. It's like the leaky vessels, isn't it? Thank you for the birthday present. <laughs> okay. So, um, let's go on. So there's something new you forget, can forget. Um, the actual, the new next outline is the actual meditation. Show how to meditate in general and how to do so in the present context. Did anybody read ahead? about what we're covering today? No, I read your notes. No one read ahead? I did a little bit. One person. Hmm. Okay. So, um, here, you know, how to meditate in general. Yeah. Then it says, if you wish to make your mind receptive to virtue, you must be sure of the order and number of meditation topics and sustain with mindfulness and introspective awareness of what has been ascertained with neither surfeit nor lack. Oh, I would love a good translation. Otherwise, the virtuous practices of a lifetime will be flawed. Okay? So, what it's saying is, you know, in order to meditate, then you must know what the meditation topics are. So needless to say, you must know the six preparatory practices. Okay? And you must be sure of the order of the meditation topics. Yeah. And then to pay attention to them with mindfulness of the points that they are, to remember the points and with introspective awareness that makes sure that you're concentrating on those points. And then how to do so in the present context. The present context is going over the, um, the meditation on how to rely on the spiritual mentor. So here it's abbreviating the main points to do the analytic meditation on the spiritual mentor. Okay, so to contemplate the advantages of relying on a spiritual mentor, the drawbacks of not relying on them, okay, and then to resolve to refrain from viewing their faults, and four, to contemplate their good qualities so that we can have faith and confidence in them, and then five, to recall their kindness and uh, generate uh, a feeling of gratitude and veneration. Okay, so that's kind of reviewing the major steps through this meditation on uh, the spiritual mentor. Okay, and then what to do to conclude is afterwards we dedicate the, the virtue. So it's very good when we do the dedication to to all uh, to think of the emptiness of the circle of three. In other words, ourself is the one who's dedicating the merit that's being dedicated, the action of dedication. Okay, 
And so to contemplate that and then to really dedicate with a feeling of sincerity and a feeling of rejoicing, you know, rejoicing at our own merit and dedicating all of that merit, okay, with the awareness of emptiness and dedicating it not uh, so that we can win the lottery, or so that we can be the most popular person, or whatever, but dedicating it so that um, we can realize all the paths and stages to full awakening and be of great benefit to sentient beings. Okay. And then the next outline is what to do to conclude the meditation session. Okay, so that's, that's what we're on right now, so the first part of that was dedicating the virtue. And then it gives some more instructions. It says, following this procedure, divide the day into four sessions and make every effort. Temporarily do short and numerous sessions in order to avoid having laxity and excitement, ending your sessions on a good note. Once you have mastered these, you may prolong the sessions if you're free of laxity and excitement. Okay? so. It's saying, you know, the best way to practice, if you can, is to do four sessions a day. So one when you first get up, one between breakfast and lunch, one in the afternoon, one in the evening. So in a way, I mean, that's kind of the best way to do it, like anticipating that you're in in retreat and have a retreat schedule. Yeah, so if you can't do that, then at least do morning and evening. And then during the day, try and remember, you know, what what the topics are that you're meditating on. And then it's saying do short sessions to start with so that you can stay focused and so that you end on a good note. Yeah, whereas if you, like, make your sessions really long, then at the end you're tired and you're going, oh, thank goodness, I'm done with this. And then you have no uh, wish to, you know, to practice again in the future. So it's important to kind of stop where you still have, you know, a good feeling about your meditation. Okay. So, you know, when we're starting, we have to start with an amount of time that makes sense for us. You know, not too short, not too long but an amount of time that we can stay comparatively focused and do the practice well, arise and feel refreshed, and then go about our daily life things. And then, you know, if you can't do all four sessions, then do something later in the day, but not so late that you're totally exhausted. So don't leave your evening session until just before you go to bed because, you know, you're going to have a lot of sleeping meditation creeping in there and you know and then becomes totally miserable because you're so tired and you don't want to practice because you're tired and then that creates a very bad feeling okay um, and then between sessions do not put the topics meditated out of your mind but recall them again and again okay so um, you know, don't just meditate on something and then 
forget about it during the day. You know, that's like listening to teachings and then forgetting about them afterwards. You know, because then nothing sticks in. You don't benefit at all. So whatever you're meditating on, try and hold. You know, in the Lam Rim, your Lam Rim meditations, try and hold it in your mind throughout the day, and use whatever is happening in the day to remind you um, of that meditation. So use whatever is happening as like um, something that that exemplifies the meaning of the meditation. Okay, so let's say you're meditating on precious human life, then if you take a walk in the forest and you see all the different insects and bugs, then think like, well, what would it be like to have that kind of rebirth where my mind couldn't think of anything and I'm trapped in that kind of body and how awful that it, you know, would be. And then come back to how you're feeling now, like, wow, I have a human life and I can really do something good with it. And so in that way, uh, remember the meditation that, that you're focusing on. Because, you know, most of the, you know, as beginners, most of the day probably is going to be, when we're not on the cushion, it's going to be the break time. And what we do in the break time influences tremendously um, how our meditation sessions go. Yeah. Um, Because in the break time, if we're just talking about this and that, jabbering, all over the place, then when we sit down, you can feel your energy is, you know, kind of, it's it's not centered, it's kind of chaotic, yeah, and you're replaying discussions that you had, and what they said to me, and what I said to them, and what I should have said, and what they should have said, and what I'm going to say tomorrow, and all this kind of stuff, and it becomes hard to concentrate, you know on your meditation, whereas if you, you know, in the, in the break time, if you really kind of guard your mind and uh, don't get involved in a lot of useless activities and distracting activities, then it's much easier when you sit down to do your meditation again. Yeah. See, I'm sure you can see that from your own experience. Yeah, it becomes kind of obvious after a while. Um, okay, so uh, for that purpose of keeping in mind the meditation objects uh, during the break time, then uh, having conditions favorable to the arising of positive uh, qualities and purifying uh, adverse conditions is something uh, important, you know. And so we thus accumulate merit and purify obscurations. Okay, so you try and remember your topic, and in the break time, you do purification and creation of merit. So what are some ways you can do purification and creation of merit in the break time? So when you're working outdoors, then mentally making offerings of 
all the natural beauty that, that you're seeing. Okay, what else? Purify while you're vacuuming. Yeah, purify while you're vacuuming, while you're toilet. While you're cleaning while you're the, the toilets, washing the dishes, okay, by doing the thought training practices and thinking that you're purifying the minds of sentient beings. What else? Also, if the mind gets negative or you get stuck in a habit that isn't uh, virtuous, you can do a quick Vajrasattva purification. Yeah, so if you notice your mind getting non-virtuous or stuck, you know, do a very quick visualization of Vajrasattva and recite some mantra. What else? Something we do a lot around here. So studying the Dharma, offering service. Yeah. Offering food, yes. Yeah, offering food is a very important practice. You know, whenever we're eating, drinking, to remember to offer that. Okay. So to to try and do purification during the day. Just, you know, by what we're doing. And also, even as we're walking around to make virtuous aspirations. Yeah, when you, uh, you might be reading the, the news, and so you, you know, make aspirations about how you want to be, what kind of things, qualities you want to have, what kind of activities you want to avoid. You do prayers for the various people that we don't even know, that, but we read about in the news, who are sick, who have been injured or killed. Yeah. One prayer that you did was very helpful. Yeah. Okay, so all those, those um, the verses from the Avatamsaka Sutra, yeah, the thought training verses, very, very helpful. Walking upstairs, walking downstairs, all those things. So very good ways to, to create merit and to keep the mind in the Dharma. Mm-hmm. And then also, just really checking our mind as we're going through um, our day. And, you know, are we becoming biased? Are we becoming stubborn about something? Yeah. And so correcting the mind, adjusting the mind if we need to. Okay. Then it says, furthermore, maintain ethical conduct. Yeah, that's important to do in the break time, isn't it? Because if we don't maintain ethical conduct, then when we sit down to meditate, our mind's full of regret about what we just said and did, or our mind's full of confusion about, you know, what did I say? Was it, you know, true? Was it not true? You know, beneficial, not beneficial. So very important to create, to keep ethical conduct, keep our precepts. And then there's four causes for serenity and insight to arise easily. So serenity and insight are the long-term goals, you know, that that we're aiming for. We cultivate them by doing all these long-term meditations, but we're really trying to gain serenity and insight focused on emptiness. Okay, 
So there's uh, four practices. It says for serenity and insight to arise easily, but it's for all dharma understandings to arise easily. So first is to control our senses. So remember when we had the, um, the course just like 10 days ago on developing concentration, we spent almost the whole course on controlling the senses, didn't we? And talking about, you know, uh, how attached we are to pleasant visual things, pleasant sounds and smells and taste and tactile objects. Yeah, so to really control the, the senses, not to let the mind wander outside looking for all sorts of pleasant experiences that we then develop a lot of attachment towards and we develop anger when we can't get them. Yeah, but learning to keep the, the senses in. And so that's one reason why as monastics we don't go shopping unless we really need something and why we only get what we went out to get, yeah? Because otherwise, we start walking up and down the aisles. We went to get one item, and we come out with 15, you know, because we've been walking up and down the aisles, and then attachment and greed arises. Oh, you know, this thing that uh, I never thought of for the last four months. All of a sudden we need, oh, not just me that needs it, the Abbey needs it. Yeah. So we, we uh, get it for the Abbey, and that kind of sanitizes it in some way. <laughs> yeah, but uh, check up, you know, because sometimes it's, it's just, you know, our, our own attachment, our own greed. So to, you know, control our senses. Not only, you know, looking at objects and shopping areas, but looking at other people. Because we look at people and then our mind starts, you know, why does this one do this and why does that one do that? And this one's very good looking and that one's very bad looking. And I want to talk to this one. I don't want to talk to that one. And developing all sorts of opinions. And none of that is very helpful either. Yeah. And so you can see, you know, at least for, the, you know, those of you living at the Abbey, why we have certain in-house regulations, you know, why we don't buy our own food. Because, you know, if you went into town to do errands for the Abbey, then it's so tempting. Well, let's stop by this and that and get some of the food that I really like that we never have at the Abbey. Yeah, and then we're acting out our attachment and going and buying things. So we have one of our in-monastery in rules is, you know, well, actually, it's not just this. It's, it's following the Buddha. You know, the monastics are, are not to buy their own food. So it's something that really helps our own practice because then, you know, it, your mind doesn't even go there because you know it's not something you're going to do. Or similar, you know, go to the beach. You know, when you go, aside the fact that we don't have a beach, you know, close. But, you know, to go and hang out, yeah, that when we go to town, we also don't then just, you know, well, let's go take a walk here and let's go take a walk there and do this, that, and the other thing as long as I'm out, you know. Because, again, then our mind gets distracted, 
by other sense objects, we start having a lot of opinions and ideas about them, and the mind, you know, goes outside, and it makes meditation quite, quite difficult. Okay, so we're not saying that you you always walk like this everywhere you go, you know, but you you monitor what you let your sense, you know, what you let yourself look at and hear and watch what's going on in your mind. If you're starting to form a lot of ideas about different people, you know, then you cut it. Okay? So control your senses. Second one is eat with moderation. Okay? So eat what health, healthy food and what our body needs, you know. So don't eat too much. If we eat too much, when we sit down to meditate, we're groggy. Yeah, and our body also feels uncomfortable. Okay, and then three is strive in yoga without sleeping. Okay, so, yeah, strive for it. And when you do sleep, apply the body posture and a certain way of thinking, okay? So the idea here is you we sleep the amount that our body needs, not more. So it's like eating. We eat what we need to stay healthy, but not more. We sleep what we need, but we don't oversleep. Okay? Because, you know, our precious human life has a limited amount of time in it, and we consume an awful lot of time sleeping. You know, and especially if we just like lying around and oversleeping. I mean, our, so much of our life can go by. And so that's why they really recommend, if you can do it, you know, because they divide the day into six periods. So the four hours in the middle of the night, like from 10 to 2, they say sleep those hours. Yeah, for that sixth of the day and then practice the rest of the day. Now, you know, whether we can manage on four hours of sleep is another matter. You know, if you can't, then sleep longer. Yeah, but just sleep to the minimum of what your body needs. Yeah, and I think don't have this idea in the mind like, well, I definitely need eight hours, and without eight hours or without ten hours, you know, I'm going to get sick and my body's going to fall apart. Because again, the more we, we have that solid concept in our mind, the more we limit our possibilities, you know? Whereas if you, you know, you play with it, you know, well, how much sleep do I really need? And see see what you need, and and then stop there. Yeah. Now, how do you determine what sleep you need? I don't think it's by sleeping naturally and then when you wake up, that's the amount. Because I know for myself, if I don't use an alarm clock, I would really really sleep a long time, and I don't think I need to sleep that much. Okay, so the amount you sleep is not from when you go to bed until when you naturally wake up. You know, you see how much 
sleep you need according to what you can function on. You know, if you get really tired, so you're always falling asleep or you're in a bad mood, then you need a little bit more sleep. Yeah. But, you know, really, really see what your body needs and don't make some kind of solid concept in your mind. Yeah, such that if you don't sleep that much, you set yourself up, you know, oh, I didn't sleep my full eight hours or ten hours, now I'm going to get sick. Because if you think like that, for sure you'll get sick. <laughs> okay? You getting what I'm saying? Yeah? Can you talk a bit about the, the sitting posture? Oh, I yeah? I don't quite understand, like, you know, leg straight, better not kind of... Okay. So they say if we can go to sleep in the position that the Buddha lay... Uh, lay down in when he attained parinirvana it's a position that can help the, the winds flow. So you lie on your right hand with your hand under your cheek. If you can use your ring finger to block that nostril, that's good. Otherwise just leave it open. That's fine. Okay. And then uh, your legs you know, they don't have to be totally straight. They can be a little bit bent, but you're not curled up in a ball. And then uh, your left hand on, on top of your thigh. Okay, so you can fall asleep in that position. It's quite good. Yeah, they advise against sleeping on your stomach. Yeah, because that makes you quite heavy. Yeah. So see if you can fall, fall asleep in that position. And they say also, before you fall asleep, think about something virtuous, because, uh, and you can really tell this, you know, that what you're thinking about before you go to sleep is what you wake up thinking about, you know? It's, it becomes quite evident. Or even you get up in the middle of the night, you know, what are you thinking about when you get up? It's usually, you know, what happened before you went to bed. So that's why before you go to bed, it's very good, you know, read some Dharma book. Have something virtuous in your mind. Don't read the news before you go to bed. Don't read something that's going to excite your mind or, or cause a lot of, you know, negative emotion to arise. You know, don't look at Facebook and all this kind of junk before you go to bed. Because, you know, that sleep is a mental factor that's neutral, but we can make it virtuous or non-virtuous according to what our mental state is while we sleep. So, you know, before you go to sleep, if you make three prostrations, you lie down, maybe you, you know, you think of putting your head in the Buddha's lap and this gentle light from the Buddha bathing you and you know, you generate a, a, an attitude of loving kindness or you dedicate all the merit from the day, then that's very good because you're putting your mind in the Dharma. Okay? And then, um, you know, when you wake up, how you wake up is also very important. Yeah? And so wake up and immediately take refuge and generate your motivation. Okay? So refuge in the three jewels and then your motivation. Today as much as possible, I'm not going to harm anybody with my body, speech, and mind. Today as much as possible, I'm going to benefit them. 
and today as much as possible I'm going to cultivate bodhicitta. And then, you know, you maintain that as your motivation for being alive and you, you know, you, you focus on that with mindfulness, you bring your mind back to it periodically during the day, you know, constantly remembering your motivation. That's why here at the Abbey, you know, so often during the day we're doing different recitations, aren't we? Yeah, I mean, you have your morning practice and you're blessing the speech and your practice and the monastic motivation, chanting before breakfast, the, you know, the verse we recite after our, um, our stand-up meeting, Okay, before offering service, then we offer our food before lunch, we chant after lunch. If we're, you know, doing some activity together, again, we re- recite, you know, something, or we, we um, um, generate our, our motivation before medicine meal, offer the food, evening meditation, you know, again, our motivation, closing the, the end of the day with dedication. You know, so many people who come and visit here, you know, have remarked to me that they really see the purpose for our um, our daily schedule. Because if you just keep the daily schedule, your mind is very easy for your mind to stay in something constructive, because all day long you're generating a good motivation in one situation or another. Yeah. And so they say they find it very, very helpful, you know, whereas when left on our own, living in the city, you know, the mind forgets the Dharma during the day. It forgets the motivation, you know, forgets to offer the food. So, you know, there's real purpose to, to the schedule and how we have so many things that are constantly reminding us. Okay? And in spite of all of that, we forget. Incredible, isn't it? And then the fourth uh, cause is mindful and introspective behavior. Okay, so to really be aware of what we're saying and doing and thinking and feeling in the break time. Yeah. There's lots of beautiful passages in the scripture about this, you know, how you just practice, uh, you know, being aware of what you're doing. And I find that, you know, so much, so many things I do on automatic that sometimes I can't remember if I've done them or not. Yeah, because I do them so much so on automatic that my mind is somewhere else. And then it's like, well, did I do that or did I not do that? Okay, I'm glad somebody else is nodding their head. It's not just me. Yeah, you too and you too and... Yeah, and so to, you know, try and, and uh, pay attention to what we're doing. You know, I was thinking about that, that sometimes we, I think I don't pay attention because things are so habitual, so I don't want to fill my mind up with habitual things, but then I can't remember what I've done or where I put something, you know, which, you know, wastes a lot of time if I can't remember yeah. yeah. So fortunately, my room's quite small. There's certain places I put my glasses, you know, 
in certain places I put my mala so I can find them easily. But I notice that when I'm traveling, sometimes, you know, it take, I may put something down in the room I'm staying in, but because I don't have those same certain places where I put things, I have to look a little bit more for them. Okay, whereas if we, you know, pay more attention to what we're doing, then maybe that wouldn't happen so much. Ms. Chen Leslie Hall, I certainly have had a lot more things misplaced. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, now with Chen Leslie Hall. Yeah, the amount of stuff. We leave here, we leave there. Time, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Holding on to, uh, you know, our hats or our jackets or our work clothes or. Huh? Zen. Zen. Our Zen, yeah. Where's my Zen? We store our shoes around. Yeah. Yeah. There's like one, one, two, three, four, five entrances to Chenrezi Hall, so we have to remember which one our shoes are at. Yeah. Okay. So it says the preliminaries, the main meditation, the conclusion, and the intercessions, the break times, are the same up to insight, excluding the main meditation. So what they're getting at is that the preliminaries, the six preliminaries that we did, the dedication, the break time, all of that is the same. The only thing that differs in all the meditations from, um, you know, relying on the spiritual master up until threat, uh, to... Um, insight is the actual meditation topic and the points in that. Yeah. Although I should say that the perfection of meditative stability, you don't do analytic meditation on that. Okay. Okay, then it talks about uh, why it is necessary to meditate using both meditation methods. Okay, so both meditation methods mean developing um, stability that falls on the side of serenity and uh, cultivating analysis which falls on the side of uh, insight. Okay, so we need to cultivate both of those. So it has, you know, what it says here, is just as gold becomes malleable when heated and washed, so too will focusing on disgust and delight with non-virtuous and virtuous karma and its effects, for example. With intense apprehension of the object and prolonged analytical meditation, ensure mental serviceability for achieving either serenity or insight, whichever you wish. Hence, to realize selflessness, analytical meditation is best. Okay, so what they're talking about here is, you know, we, we want to develop analysis and um, stability in our meditation. Okay, so because we want to have, develop serenity and insight. Yeah. And, you know, to and we need to be able, in all the meditation topics we, we meditate on, to apply both analysis and stability. Yeah. 
So if, if you're doing an analytical meditation on precious human life, for example, or on death, you know, you contemplate the different points, and then at the end you develop stability by focusing just on the experience that you had. You stop the analysis and just focus on the experience. Okay. The more you do the Lamra meditations, the easier it becomes to meditate in general, and the easier it becomes to develop concentration. Okay? Because, you know, what it says here, you know, developing disgust with non-virtuous things and delight with virtuous things, yeah, help, you know, when we have that very strong inside of us, it affects us not only, you know, the choices we make during the break time, but it affects our ability to concentrate, yeah, because if... For example, we've done a lot of meditation uh, on impermanence and death, on the defects of cyclic existence, on the defects of the uh, afflictions and how they limit us and confine us. If we then, and to have a sense of, you know, here it uses the word disgust, but it disgust is kind of a a strange word, you know. I wouldn't say it's that disgust, like, Bleh! I want to barf, you know. It's more like, no, I'm not going there, okay. Yeah, but it's a wise kind of, no, I'm not going there, because I've done the Lamer meditations about the disadvantages of these things. Yeah, so I know the disadvantages of improperly relying on my spiritual mentor or not taking refuge or not contemplating death or, you know, and I know the benefits of meditating on bodhicitta, of remembering death, of taking refuge and so on. So, you know, when you have that kind of awareness of, you know, like, no, I don't want to go there, that doesn't lead me anywhere, and this is something good, I want to practice that, then that awareness helps you concentrate on whatever your object of meditation is, okay? Because it's going to act as an automatic um, uh, patrol, so to speak, that's going to keep you from getting distracted. Because what are our distractions about? Stupid agios, okay? So if you've really thought about the the defects of... of um, non-virtuous karma, then if you start getting angry in your meditation, you start ruminating and feeling sorry for yourself in your meditation, yeah, then um, as soon as you notice it, because you've, you have trained your mind well to see the defects of such a way of thinking, then you immediately say, no, I don't want to let my mind continue thinking that way because it's stupid and it's useless. Yeah, so then that helps you really to, to notice the distractions easier because the distractions are opposite of those virtuous thoughts and it helps you let go of those distractions and then, you know, when you're very well uh, 
aware of the advantages, let's say, of taking refuge, of generating bodhicitta. You've done those meditations. You know how they uplift your mind. Then, you know, it's very easy to shift your mind to something positive, and that eliminates the laxity. Okay, so you know when you remember the things where, where you don't want to let your mind go to that, it cuts out the excitement. When you remember the things that what your mind wants to go towards, what you, the dharma things you feel delight in, then it help it cuts out the laxity and gives your mind a lot of energy. Okay, so that's one of the reasons why the lamra meditations are so important because. It will really uh, influence your ability to concentrate, and you know, and develop uh, concentration. Okay. Um, so stability is when we're trying to stay one-pointed on the meditation object. Analysis is where we're examining or investigating the meditation meditative object. Okay. So there's some misconceptions that get refuted here. So one misconception is that although there are both analytic and stabilizing meditations, one single person does not practice both of them. So here the thinking is, oh, well, if you're a scholar, you practice analytic meditation. And if you're a yogi, you you practice stabilizing meditation. Wrong. Okay, because everybody needs to practice both. We need to be able to combine stabilizing and analytic because we need to cultivate concentration and and, uh, insight. Okay, there's another um, misconception, which is that all conceptions uh, are useless. You know, that they all are grasping at inherent existence. So you have to get rid of all conceptions, um, whether they're virtuous or non-virtuous, because it's just like clouds in the sky. Whether they're storm clouds or, or fluffy clouds, they're still clouds. You've got to get rid of all of them. So that also isn't correct, because in our practice, we have to learn how to think practically. We have to think correctly and properly. Okay, we have to learn how to analyze and how to discern and how to discriminate, you know, in our meditation practice. So meditation isn't just spacing out, getting all the thoughts out of your mind and you sit there like, you know, I'm not thinking about anything, how blissful it is to be blank-minded. You know, that kind of meditation actually, they say, makes you... uh, quite stupid, yeah, definite disadvantage to that. And you can see it, because the mind just is spaced out. So yes, it's true that we want to overcome thinking, you know, and we definitely want to let go of all the discursive thought. But, you know, we need to know how to think properly how to analyze and investigate so that we can understand the Dharma correctly yeah, and then meditate correctly and really understand these topics and, and uh, put them in our, in our mind. You know? Because if you don't do that, 
then you may even have single-pointedness. But when you get up from your meditation, you can't discriminate very well. Like, you know, what is wholesome and what is not wholesome. Yeah? And that's, that's a big drawback if we can't have that kind of discrimination. Hmm? Okay. Um, another misconception is that if a lot of analytical meditation is done prior to the arisal of meditative stabilization, uh, it becomes an obstacle. That also is not true. Okay? So, um, you know, thinking that, oh, I shouldn't do any analytic meditation, because if I do that, then I won't be able to generate concentration. That's incorrect. Because, like I explained, if you do the analytic meditation about, you know, the benefits of, uh, you know, taking refuge, developing bodhicitta, realizing emptiness, that helps your meditation on other topics. If If you spend time doing analysis on the drawbacks of, you know, not relying on a spiritual teacher, not remembering death, and so on, then that also will help you cut out different things. Okay? So, uh, yeah, don't have that kind of wrong conception. Okay, so that... Okay, so he he says here too, uh, when working to achieve meditative serenity, for example, So here, when you're specifically working to attain meditative serenity, it is not good to analyze excessively as stabilizing meditation is needed. Yeah, for that reason, since both scholars and meditators need to uh, achieve serenity, faith in the master, and so forth, they train using both analytic and stabilizing meditations. Okay, because to attain... um, uh, serenity, you need more uh, stabilizing meditation to develop uh, a, a good attitude towards your spiritual mentor to realize emptiness. You need more analysis. And so since everybody, no matter whether you're a scholar or a yogi, needs to develop the same realizations, we all have to, to do those. And it says, moreover, since laxity and excitement are obstacles to mental stability, Intense clarity is ideal for dispelling laxity and intense disgust or intense, you know, like I'm not going down that road is very helpful for overcoming excitement as explained in numerous excellent and authoritative treatises. Since they dispel uh, contrary conditions, do not consider it wrong to use them. So this also reminds me of something that His Holiness says, which is that our mind is a very complicated thing. And it takes more than one kind of meditation to transform our mind. Yeah. So that's why we need many different kinds of meditation. And this can be confusing for us at the beginning. You know, because we come into Tibetan Buddhism and there's so many different practices to do. And how do I construct a practice? Because there's so many things and I'm told to do all of them. You know, and it can get very confusing. 
And so to understand that, you know, we need to do a variety of things because they all work with different aspects of our mind. And that's important, you know, to work with different aspects. Not just, for example, to meditate on the breath and that's all you do. Yeah. Because if you just meditate on the breath, you're not going to develop, you know, the understanding of the long run topics. Okay? Or if you just do tantra visualization, you're not going to develop, you know, a lot of these other understandings. So, so it is with anything. Yeah? Okay? So, any comments or questions? Yeah. Well, intense disgust is easy to figure out. Intense disgust. But what about intense clarity? What are the causes and conditions to bring that about? Okay. So intense clarity. It's here. It's um, yeah. Because the the clarity of the mind. Okay. Here is is said to be the antidote to laxity. What? So if you're developing just serenity, then you work on just the clarity of the mind and the intensity of the clarity, which means the mind is clear and knows the object well, can reflect the object well. But in a more general sense, clarity can mean, you know, understanding, you know, understanding things to be clear, like it said at the beginning. What are the meditation topics? What are the points? What are the order of those? So that's in a more general sense. Okay. So it's different when you speak just about developing serenity in general. Yeah? I find that even after all these years of doing long room that there are certain topics that I get so much into the analysis, but when it comes to the conclusion where I want to drop down and see what I've kind of understood to get a feeling, there are some I just, even after all these years, I haven't been able to do that, like the one on concentration, where you're not supposed to do analysis, but you're supposed to look at the different types of, 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 of obstacles that get in the way. Mm-hmm. Um, the one on mind and rebirth, I really, I can't, I can't put my mind around some of the um, um, well, let me even, the, even the Four Noble Truth one. It's like I want to unpack it more than it, than it is. I, I spend so much time on the analysis to kind of get my understanding together that by the time I get to the conclusion, I can't I can't generate some like a, a feeling around what I've just done. And um, I, I know, and I have some favorite topics. I always go to those when I really want to get a conclusion. Mm-hmm. I can get a feeling to, like yeah. precious human rebirth, and even the one of the arisals of what what outside factors bring the arisals of afflictions. Mm-hmm. That's always so helpful for me. Mm-hmm. And of course, the seven point cause and effect. I just love. But there's some of them that just always draw you after all these years. Yeah. So, so are you saying that you're not very interested in the analysis? Or you enjoy the analysis, but at the end you don't have a strong experience. I enjoy the analysis. You enjoy the like analysis. Over, maybe overthink. Yeah, that's what I was just going to say. That maybe you're you're over analyzing something and not giving yourself enough space to kind of uh, 
feel the impact of what you're thinking about. Yeah, yeah, because that one particularly on the far-reaching practice of concentration, it says to go okay. through the different things. Now, I know okay, well, well, let me explain that, because maybe you're I not doing know. it correctly. Yeah, I don't know. Because the far, uh, you know, far-reaching concentration, you don't okay. specifically do analysis. Yeah, you can, it outlines, like, for example, the five hindrances right. or the five faults. Right. Yeah. So when those, it's good to understand what those are, but you can, you understand what they are also through doing other meditation. Like, you know, if we do the, the five hindrances, one is sense, sense attachment. Right. Okay, so if you've done meditation on the afflictions, you've understood attachment already. Mm-hmm. One is, you know, malice, if you've done meditation, again, on the afflictions or on the, the uh, far-reaching patient, uh, fortitude, you understand that, right. okay? Doubt, same thing with the afflictions, right. yeah? So many of those, you don't need to do analytic meditation on them in the context of developing serenity. You've understood what those things are from your meditation on other topics, then when you're developing serenity, if those hindrances come up, you recognize them, and you know what the antidotes are. Okay. Okay? So antidote to sensual desire is going to be meditation on permanence, which you've developed before, and so you remember it there in that context when you're trying to focus on the Buddha, but your mind's getting distracted. Okay. So, so let's say, for example, when we're leading our guests in the chapel, we come up to that meditation. Yeah. Then you teach, for leading the guests, the meditation on the Buddha or on the breath, how to find the object of meditation, how to keep your mind on the object of meditation, and then you do it exactly what we like what we did in the concentration retreat. Okay. okay? And you can talk about what the obstacles are. Okay. Yeah. But remind them that they understand the obstacles and the remedy to the obstacles through doing the other long run meditation. Okay. Okay. Lying yeah. out what's going to happen in your mind, and this is how you take care of it, but how yeah. you do it within the context of that long run topic. Yeah. yeah, no, you, you give them, you know, you're focusing on the Buddha. These are the things that are likely to happen. You say this in a talk, okay. and then if it comes up in a talk, if this comes up, do that long med- meditation. If this comes up, do this long med- meditation. Okay, okay. Okay? Helpful, helpful. Yeah. Because I use that when they come up in my other long room, like I'm supposed to, but when I come to that particular long room, I'm always somewhat like packed and I'll go to the next one. Yeah. So, no, okay. you do you do okay. the meditation on concentration exactly the way we did, going around, getting the full okay. idea of the object, focusing okay. like that. Great. Okay. And actually, it's good to do a little bit of that meditation every day if you can. You know, and uh, you know it doesn't even have to be long. Because if you notice, sometimes when His Holiness gives the initiations, or whatever, he'll say, "Let's meditate on this for one minute," and it's one minute, but you're focused. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Okay. Anything else? Yeah.
some clarity. Um, we were going through misconceptions, mm -hmm. and I got three. Like, you know, everyone needs to do both. Um, the misconception that all conceptions are useless. Mm -hmm. The misconception, um, a lot of conceptions can be an obstacle to calm abiding. The no analysis can be an obstacle to calm abiding. Oh, okay, analysis, okay. Yeah. And that, that, that's and a misconception. Yeah, well, well, you have to understand it. Here, the misconception is that doing a lot of analytical meditation in general is going to be a hindrance to developing that's analysis. Not in general, in general it, yeah. then it, it'll make it difficult to develop concentration. That's incorrect. However, when you sit down to do meditate on, on concentration, you don't analyze because at that time the analysis will distract that was, you. That was the confusion right there. Okay. okay. Thank you. Because I thought that you were saying something very different than okay. what I heard, <laughs> and I was just going, what happened there? But it's, it's the, what's the session specifically for? Yeah. I'm doing serenity or I'm doing analysis. Yeah. And in general, of course, we need yeah. I mean, discriminative. Right. And if you're doing long run, you're yeah. doing some analysis, and at the end you have serenity. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Somehow my notes were going two ways. Okay. Okay. Shall we close? Yeah. We could see whether you want to address this question, like, from your speeches. Well, someone is asking again that a lama told them that Ripuches Yeah, in general, monks and monks and nuns general do not do, do not perform marriage ceremonies. Oh, oh you mean uh, you marry? Oh, you saying that they can Rinpoche's can marry? In other words, they can have a wife. If if the Rinpoche is a lay person, that's okay. If they're a monk, absolutely, positively not. Monastics are celibate. Period. Okay. <laughs> okay. Dedicate. May the spiritual teachers who lead me on the sacred path and all spiritual friends who practice it have long life. May I pacify completely all outer and inner hindrances, grant such inspiration, I pray. May the lives of the venerable spiritual mentors be stable and their virtuous actions spread in the ten directions. May the light of Lhosam's teachings dispelling the darkness of the beings in the three worlds always increase. Merit. May we soon attain the awakened state of Guru Buddha, that we may be able to liberate all sentient beings from their suffering. May the precious Bodhi mind not yet born arise and grow. May the born have no decline, but increase forevermore.
In the snowy mountain pure land, you're the source of good and happiness. Powerful tens and gaps of generosity, may you stay until samsara ends. May the deeds of explaining and practicing the Dharma, done by groups supporting the teachings and their upholders, who spread the view of dependent arising and nonviolent actions in the ten directions, and especially at Shravasti Abbey in the West. Oh.